At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday to hear new stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're excited to speak with Katie McMillan of Kello Inclusive, based in Edmonton. Katie has spent the last 15 years teaching French, English, and now psychology and sociology in an Edmonton public high school. Katie has loved her career as an educator, but she recently made a big career transition. She's the founder of Kello Inclusive, a talent agency that exclusively represents disabled and visibly different talent. Kello is the first agency of its kind in Canada. Katie is also a parent of three beautiful children, one of whom lives with cerebral palsy. Her daughter's disability and all the experiences that have come with it have given her a deep passion for exploring social justice issues and advocacy work. And of course, it's the reason that Kello exists. Katie, welcome to the show. Hello, Rick. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you here. I understand that you've, I guess temporarily taking a leave from the teaching business to be a full-time entrepreneur. How does that feel? Oh, it's, um, it's jumping into the unknown to a degree. I mean, I've been working with Kello or on Kello for Kello, however that works. I've been working with this um, in this industry, in this space for the last 18 months. Um, so I feel like the imposter syndrome is just starting to wear off a little bit, um, which is a nice feeling, but it's also jumping into the unknown because um, teaching, you know, is a fabulous career. It's very stable. It's very routine based. You know what you're doing every day. Um, and I'm very used to that. And with Kello, it's a very, every day is a little bit different. I'm learning so much, um, which is the exciting part of it. So, you know, there's a little bit of fear peppered in with a lot of excitement. Um, so I guess that was how I would summarize <laughs> the, the feeling of leaving that career behind uh, teaching, which has served me well. It's been a fabulous career, but this is, um, this is where my heart is currently. And I'm excited to be able to do that full time. So before we get into the Kello story, I'm just wondering, um, our listeners are all entrepreneurs. They're eager to get every scrap of advice they can from fellow entrepreneurs. So I'm wondering if there's a sort of top piece of advice that you hope will come out of our conversation today. Uh, what, a, what a thoughtful question. Um, you know, I think it would just be to, Im kind of what I already said, you know, there's, there's a fine line between, you know, fear and excitement. I think we all can understand that. And, you know, embracing the moments of fear and uncertainty are an important part of that journey. Um, but also trying to focus on the excitement, um, especially when you're working with a business for a business that excites you and where your heart lies. I think it's important to remember that um, it helps to kind of dampen the, the fear, I think, a little bit. <laughs> right. Now, I'm thinking of my first day, I mean, if I was a teacher, thinking of my first day in front of a new class every September or January, whenever the semesters begin, and especially if I had switched from teaching French and English to psychology or social or something like that, um, is it, is it, you mentioned that teaching sort of involves a lot of routine, but doesn't it also involve a lot of improv, a lot of stand up, a lot of making it up as you go along? It seems to me that they're not so different. You know, that's a that's a great point. Um, I do say often teaching like you kind of present for, you know, six hours a day. You're just in front of a group of people, which is always that interaction between presenter and audience. Um, and that is always it's it's alive. Right. It's 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 an ongoing flux. Yeah. You have to respond to the people in the room. So there's absolutely um, a degree of that, which which I'm grateful have 
you know, I got used to that. I got comfortable in that. And that, that comfort with the back and forth between, you know, you don't know quite what to expect from your students on any given day has served me well in many platforms in my life. But, you know, it's also, we've all been through the school system. It's a very routine based, you know, you have your day, it starts, you know, when your classes start, where you'll be sitting, you know, to a degree, most lessons sort of run in a similar fashion. And I think the stability of you just the structure of that school system is what um, it'll probably be the hardest or the most different piece of this because, you know, everything's a little bit flexible as I'm learning very quickly about the media marketing entertainment industry. It's a lot of last minute things that come up kind of, and changes that need to go on or big productions that have been planned for a long time with a certain timeline that you kind of have to adapt to. And every project's a little bit different. So it's definitely, there's some overlap, but also it's, it's just very, it's very different. So I, I'm, I'm kind of grateful that I've got both sides of that and that they can kind of work in, in synchronicity to a degree now. Right. Can you tell me about, uh, your first experimentation with entrepreneurship, did it begin with uh, your daughter, Kelty? Um, yeah, I mean, this is my first um, journey with entrepreneurship. And um, I can't say that it's ever something I planned on, but I don't know if anybody really does. It was more just, um, you know, the story behind Kello, which I might come up later, you know, it really started with me learning what it meant to have disability be part of my life. Kelty's 13 now. So, you know, I've had 13 years of experience of having disability be a close connection and a close part of my life. But it really wasn't until she got a little bit older and, you know, kind of became of the age where she starts to, where we all start to become aware of the world's opinion. I think that that hits for all of us, what, grade seven, maybe 10, 11 years old, where we start to see ourselves reflected in the world or not. Um, and I think that that was, as she started to hit that age, was when I started to recognize, you know, this idea that it was important for her to be able to see herself represented. I'd also had memories of a, of a, of, it was a Facebook post that a friend of mine had made years ago of this little girl in a Target magazine that was based in Australia. The, the Target magazine was from Australia. And the, it was a little girl in the clothing section um, in a pediatric walker that was the same walker that my daughter used. And that I had seen years ago when she was probably around five and sort of thought, oh, that's so cool. But as she started to get older and become aware of the world's opinion, as we all do, I thought, you know, that's, I wonder if that's something that Kelty could do. Um, you know, in her life. And I got, I tried to sign her with a modeling agency in Calgary, which we were successful in doing. It was the first disabled child they'd ever had on their roster. You know, at that time, I didn't have any visions of entrepreneurship whatsoever. But our experience with that agency, although they were really great at what they did, what they didn't do was disability. And it was, you know, I found myself doing a lot of extra advocacy work, dealing with my own frustrations about the fact that, you know, they'd book her for a fashion show, but, you know, nobody considered that they might need a ramp to get up the runway or that I needed to talk to the clothing designer ahead of time to let her know how a dress might work with a wheelchair or all of those things. And it was in that gap. So I know I'm circling back to your question here. Um, you know, it was in that gap that what I saw was missing was that somebody that needed to be in this industry that also understood disability. And when we went, you know, Kelty and I went looking for, you know, somebody to be there to be that voice, it just didn't exist. And I think that was, you know, the initial, you know, prompt for me to want to jump into something like this because I saw a need. And I think many entrepreneurs would identify with that, seeing a gap, seeing a need, and then using that as their inspiration to, to move forward in whatever way that looks like for them from a, from an entrepreneurial perspective. Um, so I, I, I hope that answers your question, but that's kind of the, that was the why behind where that started. And then the journey from there felt has felt really positive because I wasn't wrong. There was a gap or there is a gap and what we are providing as a service um, with Kello is very much needed. And it speaks to the growth and traction we've had over the last 18 months for sure. Right, and uh, I mean, I mean, you you you've told that beautifully. Um, the 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 sort of ironic origins of it. You tried to uh, to depend on the system to get it right, but there are just so many unintended intrinsic barriers that good intentions aren't enough, right? And so, 
you had to get in there and wrestle the business <laughs> into shape. Absolutely. And absolutely. And I think that, I think that, you know, I've said a lot, like, you know, our world has come a long way in terms of, you know, acceptance of many different minority groups in, and over the last 10 years, you know, we can kind of see it. I use the comparison, you know, if you go back and look at, you know, ad campaigns from the seventies and the eighties, you know, unless you were like a skinny white woman, you really didn't have a place in the media and marketing um, world. And if you look at where we're at now, you know, it would be unacceptable to create any kind of project or media campaign without including, we'll say the BIPOC community. We're coming a long way with sexual diversity um, and, and other areas, but, you know, disability is still, you know, far behind. But I see people having those conversations and, and wanting to be inclusive, um, in, which is amazing. But I also know that unless disability has been a close part of your life, it scares people. Like it's it's an uncomfortable space for people. And that's exactly what we're trying to change. Um, so seeing, seeing, I just saw that we're ready, you know, like the world seems like we're ready to have these conversations. And I just wanted to show up and be able to facilitate them is, is probably a succinct way to put it. Right. So what was that moment like when you said, damn it, I'll do it myself? <laughs> Scary. Um, and actually, like, like, I think I used this word already, but like imposter syndrome, I've heard the term. I didn't understand it. You know, 15 years deep into a teaching career, I certainly had moments of, of you know, that felt new and exciting. But, you know, you felt very comfortable. I knew what I was doing in the classroom. And to jump into this, an industry that, you know, we know just being on the periphery of it, that it's, it's competitive. It's, it's, you know, to be in front of a camera on a billboard, you know, and, and it, that's a bit scary. And for me to be the one trying to come in and say, Hey, I can help, you know, work on these projects, having no experience. It was, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely terrifying um, in, in many ways, but I also knew that, you know, the secret sauce, um, was the fact that I felt comfortable in the disabled space or around disability. Um, so I think that I think that that's been really an important piece of this and understanding your strengths will help you overcome some of the, the weakness that you may feel. So that imposter syndrome, even though you know the work of the industry was new to me, you know I had to really hang on to the confidence I had in in the, the learning and the work. Um, I'm using air quotes here um, that I had done as a parent and being involved in, in, with, in and with and for the disabled community up into that, to this point where they, the two have now intersected. <laughs> right, right. Can you give us some idea of, uh, of what Kello looks like today in terms of, you know, the, the, the number of, of talent that you've signed, if that's the right word, uh, the number of engagements you've been able to arrange, that sort of thing? Absolutely. Um, you know, I'll back up right to the beginning. You know, we, you know, I, I'll take the opportunity to add in a little tiny bit of advocacy education piece. Like if we think about, you know, our world shapes us, the media and that we are exposed to shapes our public perceptions, our social perceptions. And if you think about disability in the common associations, it really only had two and maybe to a degree still does. Disability is associated with tragedy or it's associated with inspiration. And those are kind of, that's the end of it. And I remember thinking, you know, what I wanted to change was to see disability associated things with like being trendy, being cool, being fashionable, being sexy, being interesting, you know, like those associations. And um, I think that when, when we set out to do that, um, starting, starting off was really, it was really about proving the concept. So the journey to where we are now, which I will get to, um, really started with being like, I just want to, I just want to show some imagery that shows disability in that light that changes those associations that we are stuck on as a society. And so I reached out to a photographer who had actually done some headshots for my daughter, um, who was really, she had worked with disabled talent before overseas, and she was just really already her heart was in this kind of work as well. So we just reached out to her and said, Hey, will you take some photographs for our website that, you know, showcase disability in this light? And she was really keen to do that. So in the beginning, we didn't have a roster of talent. We were reaching out to people we knew. We were like, Hey, do you want to, um, can you come to a photo shoot? We've got it in Vancouver. We've got a photographer arranged. Can you bring it, you know, just to get the proof of concept, if you will. Um, so that was, I think, a, a very big, turning point early on is that once we had a, you know, a very a 
very simple website, but with showcasing some really powerful images of disability shown in this light of being cool, interesting, sexy, beautiful, all of these things, then that's really when the traction started. And through our website and then through social media, you know, we developed a very simple intake form and we'd had a few people that would kind of apply and we'd reach out and have calls. And we said, do you want to be involved? And, you know, this was so early on, I still didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but there was a, there was a, a media outlet in Edmonton too, actually, that covered, covered the story of Kello. Um, and the one CTV um, clip went in, went national, like it was aired across the country. And I remember opening my inbox and there was like 75 intake forms from, you know, disabled people across the country. And I, that was a moment for me where I was like, whoa, we are, we are onto something here. And, you know, since that point over the last 18 months, we currently have a, a 155 um, disabled Canadians signed to our roster and actually a couple of folks in the U.S. Um, we have booked work with over 60 national and international brands, everything from small local businesses to, you know, giant corporations like we've worked with Lancome and L'Oreal. We've worked with Lego. There's WestJet. And it was really interesting to me, actually, um, just backing up slightly, is it was, it was actually within five months of having started our agency, I get this email from um, uh, an agency, a uh, in in Paris and they were saying you know we're just wondering if you have a disabled model to work on this you know um, shoot for a major cosmetics company and it there was like an NDA a close um, attached to the email and and I I remember thinking this isn't real like is this spam like they can't this how could they have even found out about us and as it turned out we ended up booking one of our Edmonton um, based talent on this Coben L'Oreal shoot in in it was in shot in Paris. Um, it was uh, you know it, it and, and that really put us on the map as um, an agency that could provide you know what the industry is really starting to look for now. And so from there the traction kind of grew and the interest grew and um, it's been it's been awesome. So 155 disabled talents, 60 national and international brands. Um, we're on a couple of major casting platforms now that um, that you have to kind of be an established agency for at least a year in good standing and you know prove yourself. And so we've just gotten onto those platforms, um, and our name has really been getting out there because, as I said, there isn't another agency that's focused on disability at all. There's a couple of you know very reputable, longstanding agencies that have. And again, I'm going to use air quotes here, you know, like things that they term like inclusive divisions or special projects, which I think are terms that are relatively unpalatable where they'll have sort of a what comes across sometimes to me as a tokenistic, you know, we have we have a wheelchair user on our roster, but it doesn't seem to me as authentic um, because the spectrum of disability is 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 so vast and beautiful um, that I think that, you know, it's important to and I don't think we'll ever change our focus on on disability as much as you know the industry might demand. Or you think, oh, maybe you could earn more money if you sign other types of talent. But uh, my heart is in supporting disabled talent and persons with disabilities in the best way that I can. Um, so there you. Yeah, Another long-winded yeah. answer, but hopefully that, <laughs> that answered the question. <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations on your success. You've actually you know started up and. And, and, and you've started changing people's minds and you've started changing the industry. So who knows what's going to happen, but hey, you've really accomplished something so far. So my congratulations. Well, thank you so much. To you on that. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I appreciate that. I did want to add in one other thing that is just kind of a cool byproduct. You know, when, when we started this, obviously getting a person with a disability in some, uh, on some campaign in front of people, that, you know, on a billboard, on an ad, like that's, that's what I set out to do. That's the mission I wanted to, to focus on. And we've done that. But what I didn't know and what I do know now is that the beauty of this, the learning, all of the social change that happens is actually long before that final product gets released into the world. Because every person on any project in this industry that works with our talent learns all the way along. And all of the conversations and questions leading up to the, to the final product, that's the magic of what we're doing. Um, and I have so many examples, but like the one I gave you about Tash going to Paris, like her wheelchair broke 
on the way on the flight. The it, it the, the, the caster wheel was snapped. it didn't break. Someone broke it. Someone broke it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Actually, That's, I'm going to use that from now on. Um, but it broke on the way over. Uh, sorry, someone broke it on the way over, and you know she arrives in Paris with this wheelchair that doesn't work, and she's a she's a quadriplegic spinal cord injury, and you know we really proved our worth as you know folks, uh, agents that, you know, serve our talent as best we can, you know, calling Paris at, you know, all hours of the night to try to find somebody in that city that could repair the wheelchair and what are the specs on it and how do we deal with that? And, you know, <clears throat> the the fellow in Paris who was, who was arranging all of the details, you know, he had, he was like, oh my goodness, thank you for being able to help and support in this way. And then, you know, lots of great conversations between him and the other people on the on the production about what Tash needed, what that would look like. And that's kind of the magic of this work. Similarly, you know, a little girl that went to Prague to shoot a Lego commercial, which was another really exciting moment for us. They needed her to have, she has a prosthetic, she's a lower limb difference. She has a prosthetic, but they needed her to have a running blade because she's the, 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 um, the the role that she was playing in this commercial, she was emulating a younger version of a para athlete, and she needed this running blade. So I'm calling prosthetists in Vancouver to see if they can make you know a running blade on sort of short notice. And then in the meantime, I'm talking to this casting director in London. She's like, "What even is a running blade?" I'm like, "Well, here it is, and we're just getting a new one." And she and so there's just all of this learning that happens just kind of organically, which is actually the best, most impactful part of the work that I'm doing. And I didn't expect that. I always thought it would be about the product at the end and having, you know, someone with a disability on a billboard, but that just is icing on the cake, I would say. <laughs> right. So, so you're educating people, changing their minds, opening them up to what the, what, what possibilities are out there. And as you, and, and these, all these people who work on numerous projects, they will bring that to all those future projects. And eventually they will start seeing each other again and, and building on it. So uh, you're creating a much more informed uh, community and, and industry, which is really exciting. That is the hope, that is the hope. So I see it going in that direction and we hope we t hope to continue for sure. Yeah. And, and I was, sorry, I jumped on you about the wheelchair on the airplane. Uh, a friend of this podcast, friend of Startup Canada, is a disabled activist, Mayan Ziv, and she has been in constant combat with the world's airlines right on uh, flight. for the way. Yes, I'm very familiar yeah. with Mayan and her work. She's great. Um, she, uh, her, yeah. her app yeah. and all of that. But yeah, the rights on flights movement, it's a thing. And it needs to, I mean, it's really wild when you think about it. It's, I, I read some, it was a disabled content creator who posted something that said, you know, it's 2023, we can send people to space, but we can't get a wheelchair on a plane. Like, can we not figure this out? Like, it seems ludicrous when you put it in that context, you know? So I, I, um, I completely agree. No, absolutely. But um, yes, yeah, so in the fall, they had a, uh, there were a number of high-profile incidents of people being left uh, without their wheelchairs after taking a flight on Air Canada. And eventually, you know, it did reach the office of the CEO and they promised to change. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt on this one. <laughs> Maybe they will this time. But it's just so emblematic of the issues that your, uh, that your talent face, that they face every day. And uh, that that the world has to acknowledge and come to realize that every one of these people matters and their mobility is our business. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. And what you just touched on is truly something that resonated with me kind of early in my advocacy journey, long before Kello existed. Um, you know, I read a, so like I mentioned, disability has been part of my life for 13 years, but it was really only about five years ago that I, I really started to, to change some things about how I was seeing disability in context of the world. And it was really just a, a blog post that was written by a, an adult woman with CP. And she just kind of said, hey, parents, if you want to do something for your disabled child, you know, start listening and talking and having conversations with disabled adults. Talk to people who've lived lived the experience, which duh, like that makes sense. But it was that at the time was a, a new idea for me. And so I just did it. I just started following as many disabled content creators as I could to try to engage in that dialogue in any way that I could. And I learned so, so much. And what you just touched on was something that stuck with me in that learning journey of 
you know, sort of the medical model versus the social model of, of, of anything, but in particular disability, where we, you know, Western culture is very much the medical model where we focus on, you know, what's wrong with the person? Well, this person can't walk. What can we do to fix this person so that they can walk? Um, versus there's nothing wrong with the person. Our world just needs to, you know, how do we fix the world? So this person doesn't have to walk and they can get where they need to go. And that's sort of, you know, that at least in, is my hope for exactly what you're talking about flying with a with a wheelchair it should not be it should not be the person with a disability that needs to fit itself into the way everybody does things but how can we tweak our system to make it them fit and i think that's a really important piece yeah exactly um and just going back to diversity and representation it seems to me that it's probably been 10 or 15 years maybe 20 uh since dove came on the scene with its Dove Real Beauty campaign and they brought, you know, incredible diversity. They brought old people and people in wheelchairs, uh, you know, into their advertising for the first time ever. But then nobody followed up. Nothing happened yeah. after that. The fact that we can name that one campaign yeah. 15 or 20 years later shows how slow uh, progress has been. Yes. Do you think we're, we're going to see that progress now? Do you think that... Uh, that, that, that we can dare to hope? I think we can. I, I mean, I do. I mean, I like, I think I said this already, but you know, if we think how far we've come in the last 10 years with other forms of acceptance and representation, you know, body size, diversity, sexual diversity, um, you know, representation of the BIPOC community, all of those pieces, we've come like really far. The world is doing this work. We're, we're becoming more accepting. We know how to do it. And I think disability might just be the next the next phase of that. And I'm really grateful to be part of that journey in the ways that I have been able to, and hopefully will continue to be because I have, I choose to have a lot of faith in, in our ability, especially as Canadians, maybe that's my own, you know, Canadian bias, but you know, we're a pretty accepting nation. And I think that we are in a position to do better. And I think that we will, and I think that we want to, and from everything I've experienced in the last 18 months of the of the conversations I've had, I'll say it again, people are wanting to be inclusive. There's no lack of want. Um, it's, it's how do we do it? And disability, you know, is such a unique, um, you know, everybody's unique and individual in their own ways, but there's disability can intersect with any of those other, you know, minorities in like disability can impact us all. And in fact, just surely by the fact that we all get older, disability will be part of your life at some point, you know, just the human's age. Um, you know, so if you want to start at the most basic of if you wear glasses, how is that any different than someone that uses any other kind of mobility aid to help them move through the world? we all will be affected by it. And I think to ignore it and pretend like it's a minority experience is, is a bit ridiculous, um, you know, because it's not, it's a, it's a universal experience. Yeah. I, I remember reading Lord of the Flies when I was a kid and that was before I needed glasses and, and you're an English teacher. You might have read I Lord know, of the Flies. I know it well. I remember how, yeah, that horrible moment when Piggy's, pushed off a rock or yeah. something, I don't know what, and falls down and breaks his glasses. Yes. And, 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 so, and suddenly he cannot see. Suddenly he is, um, has, has a disability that, that suddenly the reader realizes this could be fatal. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and somehow this just came back to me as we were thinking about um, as it, you mentioned glasses, certainly um, a, an ability aid and something like that that made me realize just how important that was and how we take, you know, the, the able world uh, kind of takes uh, the complete body for granted 1, and how we just can't afford to do that. Yes. And I think that, you know, again, Were you struck I, by the moment when Piggy fell off a rock. You know what? I honestly haven't thought about that particular, I've taught Lord of the Flies. I taught grade 11 English for many years. Um, I've, I know the book well, but I never actually framed it in the context of disability, but you're absolutely right on the mark with that. And I think glasses, we've normalized glasses. Everybody wears glasses. It's, you know, it's, it's totally normalized. You don't even think about it, but how is it any different than any other mobility ability aid that we would use to help a person move through the world? It's really not. 
And I think you also touched on something that, you know, it was a quote from another, yet another disabled content creator that says, we're all just one accident illness or a few years away from disability. So like, please stop pretending like you're, you know, immune to this. And if you've done any work or have, you know, if you remember your first year sociology class in university, you know, you might've remembered talking about social privilege and what that looks like. And there's, there's lots of, you know, areas when we think about social privilege that we, you know, if you're born into a particular situation, there's not necessarily an abrupt shift into another uh, area, you know, where you're born, your cultural, um, ethnic background is not something you change, but with disability, like it could affect anybody at any stage in any arena of your life. And, and we can't pretend like that, that we're immune to that because we're just not, we're just not. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go to the limb here and ask you a negative question. Okay. Um, we've been accustomed for many years to the concept that social progress only goes one way and that things will get better. And yes, we have, we need fighters like you to come in and make situations better, but we're accustomed to the idea that, Hey, if we can fix this, it will stay fixed. And now we know that there's a lot of, uh, a pushback against diversity and representation and a lot, and, and a lot of people who, to, to whom that's not important. Have you seen any, any, any evidence of that in the work you're doing? Is there anyone who says, oh, enough of the people in wheelchairs? Um, you, what a great question. And I would say, no, not enough of people in wheelchairs. I think the pushback comes from, um, uh, the, it's, it's, it's money, right? It comes down to money in so many facets. We live in, you know, the capitalism is our society and it comes down to money. So when you think about, <clears throat> you know, changing whatever part of the world to make it more accessible, you know, it, it, money is involved. And that seems to be the stopping point. And in my particular space in the, in the media and marketing industry, I mean, when you need to have an aid on set or pay for an, a, a companion to be there as a caregiver, you know, that gives production pause because they're like, oh, that wasn't in our budget numbers, or we need to build a ramp for this particular set, or we need to, you know, hire someone to include closed captioning or to, you know, whatever access needs need to be facilitated. It's, I mean, there's always a dollar value attached to that. And I think until that becomes more normalized, that's a big sticking point for people. And as much as we would not want to admit that, like, oh, it's, you know, but we, the bottom line still matters a lot. Um, and I think that we can get there though. I choose to continue with the hopeful um, view vantage point, because if you look at something like, you know, child actors, it is very normalized that a parent or a caregiver is paid a half day rate when they are on a production and it's to protect the safety of the child. It's to make sure that someone's there to advocate for the child, et cetera, and so forth. And that's just, I think that's written into like actress, like, you know, rules, regulations, terms, whatever. And right, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so I think that it's, it, it truly is about normalizing it. And when you look at, you know, numbers, if we want to get better with representation, I mean, a, I think a quarter, close to a quarter of Canadians self-identify as disabled. Um, and, you know, this includes invisible disability as well, of course. But if you think about statistically how often that is actually shown up in front of the camera where we see it, and even in behind the camera, I mean, it's it's we're, we're way off. I think the number is less than one percent of actually having visibly um, of disability, visible or otherwise, in front of a camera. So it needs to be normalized. It, it truly does. If we want to reflect, even it get, move the needle closer towards the actual numbers that exist, and I think that you know the bottom line for people might have to shift if they want to do if they want to um if they want to actually acknowledge that but on the flip side for the motivation of why someone would want to be make their product more inclusive is i can tell you from from the perspective of a parent and i'm sure i would imagine that people in the disabled community would agree with me completely is that when you when there is a brand an organization a product that has marketing material that acknowledges and validates their existence, your brand loyalty is incredibly strong because you are now going, okay, thank you. And there's 50 million, 50 billion, pardon me, dollars of buying power with it from the folks within North America who have a close connection to disability. So if you sell anything, it would make sense, financial sense to market to that to that population because that is their buying power that you are missing out on potentially if you don't understand that there's an important 
you know, important to market to and acknowledge. So I'm hoping that with those two sides, you know, it's not just about, you know, spending money because it's the right thing to do, that if we do continue to be the capitalist world that we live in, that you'll start to recognize that that actually investment is actually going to grow your own business as well. So any entrepreneur is listening to this, you know, if you sell a product and you have images on your website, why would you not want to include some acknowledgement of disability in, the, in that marketing material? Makes perfect sense. Perfect business sense. Right. <laughs> and I, I'm curious, uh, coming out of that, how much of your business is business that you have to sell or market for as opposed to meeting demand now that they know you're here? I am grateful to tell you almost none. We have not had to do much outreach. People have come to us. And that has been true from day one. And circling right back to the reason I started this is there was a gap. And I, Kello is filling it in the best way we can right now. And I would say most of the work that we've booked have been people reaching out to us. Um, I'm starting to, you know, really focus on the, I'll, I'll use marketing or outreach from a perspective of, you know, now that we're on these casting platforms, we see all the, the castings for TV, film, commercial um, that come through on these platforms. And many of the times the roles are not requesting disability specifically. And we're just submitting our talent because that's the next step, right? So this would be, I guess, my version of cold calling when a casting director is looking for a, you know, someone to play a mom between the age of 35 and 40, um, and such as any ethnicity and the little description says nothing about disability, but we send her um, a woman who's a chair user, you know, that's not what they're expecting. Um, and we're saying, hey, consider this, you know, with just simply by submitting those, those to those roles, even though disability hasn't been specifically requested. Um, because most of the work that's come to us, it is a disab disability specific role. Um, sometimes it'll just say, you know, diversity, um, but it's them looking for that inclusion piece, which is great. But, you know, the next step, in my opinion, is to just, it should be no different. Like, why wouldn't a woman in a wheelchair submit for a role that doesn't specifically request disability? It doesn't make sense, um, you know. Right. Do you have any good success to report back to us in terms of your sort of cold calling with people with disabilities? Or have, have you seen some people say, yeah, let's do this. Why not? You know, it's, I'd love to say, yes, we've had great success. The, the short answer is not a lot of success with the cold calling. Like, so the first casting platform that we were on um, was about six months ago and we just started, you know, submitting our talent for these roles. And it was truly crickets. Like it was, it was, we were not booking work. And um, we, I made the observation very clearly is that when there is one champion in the, you know, hierarchy of decision makers on a project that cares about disability, we, we book work every time. Like, you know, there's a woman in, um, in Vancouver who found out about us and she has, I believe she has a, a sister perhaps that's disabled. And she found out about us and she, she does all kinds of casting for some pretty big work. And she's, she's the one, you know, we booked a, a woman on a Walmart commercial, actually um, two of our talent on a Walmart commercial. And that was directly because she said, Hey folks, we need to think about this. And she championed it for us. Whereas when you have a casting director who's doesn't care about it, it's not expecting it, they may not even, it's almost like, wait, I didn't ask for a wheelchair user. Why would I, why am I even looking at this is my sense. I mean, I don't know that I haven't had the direct conversations. So on these platforms where you just sort of submit without any conversation or human relationship, um, it, it hasn't translated into as much work. Um, so that I think is, is where I care a lot about also the relationships on the industry side of things of saying, Hey, you know, now that, you know, we exist, we're here for disability specific roles, but we're also here for any role. So, you know, has it, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, so the relationship piece is really important. So to answer your question, no, we haven't been super successful on the cold calling. <laughs> thank, thank you for the, 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 the true answer and not the answer I wanted to yeah, hear. But, yeah. you know, that, 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 that's part of the mission. You know, and, it is and are you still doing cold calling as, as enthusiastically as you were six months ago? 100%. In fact, my motivation to do that has increased. But one of the complimentary things that I was just right. going to add in is, um, you know, when you think about like the whole, the barriers to entry in this industry are steep <clears throat> for anyone, like seriously, anyone, it's not just anybody that gets to just dive into acting and modeling. You know, it's, it's, it's an industry that seems relatively exclusive and that's even, you know, 
amplified incredibly when you include disability in that and the barriers to entry in this industry are steep. And, and there's so many processes um, in the casting process that are actually so, I, I was going to say ableist, but so inaccessible. Um, you know, something as simple as a self-tape. And if, you know, these are now in the world post-COVID, that's often how a lot of castings are done, which is really great because you can film them in your home, which is really an accessible way for- Sorry, you call it a self-tape? A self-tape, yeah. So you submit a self-tape to a role and it's basically, you get some some instructions on a, on a casting breakdown um, with what they want in the self-tape, introduce yourself, do this, say a scene, whatever it is. Um, but, so it's an accessible way to submit our talent because you can- record these these self-tapes from the comfort of your home, which is great. But the way that the protocol is to frame a self-tape is a three-quarter length shot. So it's from the waist up. So I've also submitted a few self-tapes, you know, from wheelchair users. And as I've, after the submission, I was like, oh goodness, like casting's not even going to know this person uses a wheelchair. Like it's not even shown in the, in the, in the shot. And there's something else called a slate that either comes at the beginning or the end of a self-tape. And the slate process is where you introduce yourself. You usually say your name, your height, your age, the city you're located in, something like that. And what I'm really pushing for is I've told our talent, I was like, you use that opportunity in a slate to talk about your disability. Like a casting director is not going to expect that because that's not what it's done. It's usually very tight and they want it a certain timeline. But I was like, you say, oh, by the way, you know, I'm a wheelchair user. I have a lower limb prosthetic. I, whatever it may be. Um, so we also have to change industry protocol so that when those cold calls happen, it's not wild that, you know, your slate is slightly longer because you have to talk about your disability or the fact that you frame it differently because right. you are a chair user or whatever. Um, so that's part of it too. So I'm pushing forward. You are a hell of a disruptor. <laughs> I'm pushing ahead <laughs> as much as I can. Exactly. I, I, I'd love to know just a little bit about the, the, some of the talent that you've attracted around you, because it seems to me that many of them might have grown up thinking that this wasn't a career they could aspire to, and just wondering how their expectations, how their lives are changing as a result of the work that you're doing. Um, you know, that's a great question. And I think, yeah, like, I mean, if we look at, you know, attitudes that I like to think are passe is the, the idea that, oh, well, I can't be a model cause I'm disabled. Like that is, that's just fraught, uh, wrought with stigma and we want to get away from that. Um, and so I think just the simple fact that our agency exists is a green light for people to say, oh, wait, I can be, oh, like I can do this work. A lot of our talent comes to us with the most amazing experience, talent, interest, whatever, but they don't have the same resume, industry resume as their non-disabled peers, because it's only been in the last very short while that it's even become normalized that, oh, I could be a model or an actor, despite the fact that I have a disability as well. Um, so we're, we're already starting behind the eight ball a little bit because they just don't have, the, like I said, the same you know experience um, in doing these sorts of things. But I have realized with many of the folks on our roster that there's this real community in support of this mission of changing things that is so different, I think, <clears throat> than other, you know, agencies where our talent, it's, it, there's community there. Like I just had three women who were asked to film a self-tape for this series shooting in Vancouver. And, you know, I connected the three of them on a little group chat and, you know, they're all auditioning for the same roles, but there is not a hint of competition there. They're talking about how to frame the self-tape, how to adapt it for their particular disability. And, you know, the so supportive. Um, and I think that speaks to your question of like, how has it changed the lives of our talent? I mean, it's, it has given them, Hey, I can do this. And in fact, I'm actually really fired up and motivated. In addition, you know, one other story that I just can't, I just, it, it just tugs on my heartstrings all the time is there was a, a young woman, um, a, a little girl, she's eight years old. Her name is Lena. She lives in um, Vancouver. And um, she was one of the first people we reached out to for that very, very first test shoot that we did to, as I spoke about before, proving the concept of that disability can be cool and trendy and all of those things. And I met her mom, um, who is also a lovely woman. And the two of them um, came to Canada from Palestine. Um, Lena's lower limb difference had, was a result of um, some of the chemical warfare that they experienced um, in, in um, Palestine when they lived there. Um, and they've come here and, you know, through the work that Kello has done and through just the both of them being awesome and incredible, Lena has been booked on a couple of really major um, productions. And, you know, she's got to experience things and be, you know, that she probably didn't expect, nor did her mom. And 
they're so great. And Lena is more than deserving of all of the opportunities she's been presented with. It is not because we exist, but watching that, that, that happen for them has been really beautiful for me. And, and, you know, those personal connections and I've gotten to know Hanine and her mom a little bit and they're just lovely. And that, that kind of, you know, the fact that we were able to change some things even to a small degree for, for them has been a really cool, cool to be part of. Absolutely. What a great story. So, so, so you've been a teacher for most of your working life and, you know, as a teacher, you, hopefully you felt you were, you know, contributing to an important social mission of educating uh, kids and preparing them for, 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 for the future world they'll be living in. Did you ever think that you'd be running a business with a social mission? Um, no, I didn't. Um, I really didn't. I, you know, I always say like, if you look at the, like, I think it's, I can't remember the name of the fella, Dan Pinkman, maybe. Anyway, his work on motivation and what motivates humans. And they say, you know, what makes a a profession motivating? And he's got a little trifecta of, you know, autonomy, mastery, purpose. If you're doing work that gives you autonomy, that you feel like you can gain some mastery at, and that you have purpose, that it is a truly motivating place to be. And I always felt that way about teaching. I always felt that, you know, I had autonomy and control over my own classroom and my students. I felt that I, over years of doing it, that I developed some mastery at it. And I always felt like I had a purpose um, as you impact the lives of some of the lives of the young people who sit in front of you every day. And that was always really beautiful. And what I've recognized about this um, is that it has those three pieces, but like for me, to such a greater degree, like the autonomy of being able to run your own business is, is, is really cool. Um, the purpose behind what I'm doing is obviously great for any disabled person with a disability or a disabled Canadian, but it's my daughter as well. And I've seen, I've just seen how impactful being parts of these community is for the way that I think, speak and talk about, think and speak um, and experience disability, her exposure to many, many amazing people that are now mentors and friends who have disabilities and finding her a little piece of that community in an authentic way has been so cool. Um, And then you know, the, the mastery part, I'm not there yet. I hope that in, you know, if we ever have another interview in five years from now, I can feel a little bit more like I have some mastery. I still, like I said, the imposter syndrome is just wearing off, but I, I hope for that and, um, and like to think that. So I've been grateful to have those three things in both of my, um, professions I'll say, or career paths. And, um, this one just seems to have a lot more of it, which is really cool. But it sounds to me like you have, a, yeah, you, you, you have a lot of mastery already in this business. And every day you get to understand, you know, the show business better. So yeah. you're just going to get more and more fearsome as you go along. That's my hope. That's my hope, Rick. Yeah. Where do you, where, where, where do you see Kello inclusive, I don't know, two, three, four years from now? What's your vision for the future? Ooh, such a great question. Um, you know, I, it's a hard one to answer with any kind of numbers. Like, you know, some days you kind of have to do the, you know, how I hope that we are, what I really hope, I was going to say, I don't know how big I'd want our roster to be. You know, is it better to have a thousand people on your roster? Is it better to really support the careers in a close connected way with a smaller number of people? These are things I'm learning as I go. But on a from a really high level, I mean, I just hope that Kello gets to make a mark um, where people look back and say, hey, they started something that's still going um, and that, you know, we can change the lives of anybody that we you know, work with in big and small ways. If it's just some from someone in wardrobe who has to, you know, dress a wheelchair user on a set, or if it's, you know, all the way up to someone who's, you know, decided that they want to do similar work, regardless, um, that that would be my hope. And I've, I've just got to ask you, and I'm afraid we're going into overtime on this interview, but it's so it's such an interesting story. Um, if you had the chance to get take some investment capital, uh, are there th- things you could do with that? Is, it, have you considered the idea? I mean, the essence of business is money and capital. And if you don't have to worry about, you know, making your numbers every single month and then still putting, putting food on the table, uh, capital gives you a chance to think bigger and, 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 and address bigger needs in bigger markets. Have, have you sort of looked at that aspect of capitalism yet? Aha. Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. And it's tricky with this, this particular business because um, 
okay, so the biggest invest, like running a talent agency, at least in the, in 2023 is it's, I mean, it's basically emailing and self-taping. It's very virtual. It's very, you know, there's not a lot of overhead. We don't need, um, you know, it's not like we have a stock room full of product. So there's, it's low overhead, but the investment that is necessary is, is in people, it's in time, right? Yeah. And having people that can help um, communicate, advocate, work with the people on our roster. So the investment in capital would really be to, to be able to find people um, who care about this in the same way that I do, that are invested in this work so that I could manage, you know, our roster is 155 at the moment. And I've, I've recognized that as me personally, that's my capacity for being able to do the work in the way that I want to with that number of people. You know, if there was 200 people on our roster, I'd need, you know, you definitely need to bring on somebody else um, to be able to help with that management. But it can't just be anybody. It has to be someone who is as invested as I am because it's not just as simple as throwing talent at a job and hoping that they get booked as I've spoke about throughout this conversation. There's so much more. Um, so that investment in people that care about it are the, are our biggest would be our biggest need and then the second piece to that would be an investment in training um, training opportunities so that that gap between you know disabled talent and their non-disabled peers can we can bridge that faster so that we can provide accessible training resources for pe people that are motivated to bring them up to industry standards as quickly as possible um, that would be another one because the more we can show up to the industry with talented you know unique individuals that also have the training that they need, um, the more, the more quickly we'll be able to do this work. Right. Well, there's a ton of money in Edmonton. There's a, a ton of angel investors there who are, uh, whose hearts are in the right place. Uh, so I certainly be good to get to know some of those people and see if some of them share. Give them my email. They can call me directly. <laughs> I'll take the call anytime. Yes. Katie at kelloinclusive.org. org. <laughs> Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's a there's a con there's a contact form on our website. Just shoot me an email. We'll we'll connect for sure. Right. So we have been talking with Katie McMillan of Kello Inclusive of Edmonton. Congratulations on all the work you've done so far, and I you know can't wait to see how you keep pushing the envelope and bringing all the, all this energy and all this compassion and all this outrage into the industry. Thank you so much for letting me have some space and time to talk it through. Every time these conversations are really important for me to clarify in a real way my why I'm doing this. And this one has been no different in that regard. So I, I really appreciate you having me on, on, your, on your show. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And I hope someone brings you an apple one day. Oh, <laughs> me too, right? That'll be great. <laughs> you must miss those. Thank you, Katie. I do. Yeah, I, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.